podcast from Crew and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. Iran has seen its fair share of troubled times. That's what happens over a period of 3,000 years. This most recent episode, tragic and bloody and disturbing in so many ways, will inevitably also come to an end. Yet what kind of Iran will emerge from the fray? I'm joined by Parastu, a German-Iranian with whom I have had many debates on political issues ranging from propaganda and misinformation to gender equality and unconscious bias. Today we focus on issues much more personal to her, and you can hear her strength of purpose in her voice and her sense of outrage in her choice of words. Parasto is committed to keeping the discourse alive and, through that, the movement rumbling forward. The people of Iran deserve an opportunity to live in peace and freedom. Freedom from oppression at home and freedom from exploitation from abroad. I compliment Parastu's courage and her dedication. And I also wish the people of Iran success in finding the peace that has been denied them by so many, friends and foes alike. The connection during the podcast was occasionally unstable and there is a loss of quality as a result at some point. Fortunately, it only becomes apparent in some places. Thank you, Parasto, for your time and patience. Enjoy. So I'm joined today by Parasto, um, a person who I, I have come to know through my work with Amnesty, which is fascinating in itself. But Parasto, thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Okay. So obviously, I mean, you are somebody who is interested in so many sort of similar topics that interest me as well. Um, and that's why in the past we've had some you know, brilliant conversations. Um, but today we're going to focus on something which is um, sort of more personally connected with you because of your uh, you know, Iranian background. Um, so, you know, would you like to just generally sort of talk about where things are? at the moment in Iran and, and what's currently going on from what you are aware of, of course. So um, the last, the latest updates that I have on Iran are that there's still people being um, in jailed and imprisoned. They're getting letters um, if they've been active online, maybe posting pictures of them not wearing a hijab, that they've been summoned to court and a court and then they have to um, go there. Um, I think there's a process right now that some executions are being halted, at least, uh, and people are waiting for the sentences. Um, and I, I know about the, what is the name in English? Political patronages, I think, is the, the word. Um, in Germany itself, the work of activists like Daniela Seferi, they've been connecting 180 politicians here in Germany with um, people in Iran. So that, those are the latest 
news that I have on Iran. That I have I don't have any idea on um, the next general strikes. I think the last one was two weeks ago. Um, luckily, no no other executions so far that we've heard of in connection with the protests. There have been executions, but there were cases of people that have been in jail for maybe even more than seven years. Um, that has happened during the last two weeks, which surprised me because I was expecting um, the Iranian regime to execute more people now during Christmas, where they were thinking that people might not internationally be looking at Iran. Um, but luckily, that hasn't happened so far. Mm. Yeah, and... Um... Generally speaking, what is the mood still in Iran? Because you mentioned that the the last general strike occurred two weeks ago, and you know, a lot of people internationally were like, "Oh well, um, you know, this isn't simply a question of uh, women um, uh, sort of protesting against uh, you know the, the lack of equality." There's a general feeling in Iran that you know we can't continue like this. Um, how is that feeling, and you know, is it consistent now in the same way it was? some weeks ago? I think so. From what I've been um, hearing from relatives and friends that I've talked to in Iran, um, they're still, it hasn't changed that much that they're thinking that at a different stage of the revolution right now. Um, I mean, it is right now in the process of things some, somehow waiting for to see what happens internationally with the executions, with the political partners, just to see how much that helps how much international attention is also on Iran. Um, that is what is happening. But I think from the energy of the people on the streets, that hasn't changed. They're not giving up from what I can see. Um, I mean, I think now it has been a week, like uh, a week ago, it was 100 days since the death of Masa Gina Amini. So that was also a big day in Iran. A lot of people went to the streets again. Um, but of course, I was looking if there were like any kind of um, international coverage on the 100 days that uh, since the, her death and it hasn't been there for I've seen videos online of some cities um, really like a masses of people on the streets protesting um, and fighting for for the movement right now so that's um, what I've seen and that the energy I don't think it has changed I don't think people are even thinking of any kind of diversion or um, being like, okay, we need, maybe let's talk about reform or anything. I still, the demands are still the same, maybe even becoming more solidified in the chance that we can hear on the streets. Hmm. I mean, we're both familiar with, especially the Western press, um, and you know, they tend to focus on uh, elements of interest, which for them sell papers or encourage clicks. Uh, so unfortunately, you know, if um, if a person is killed, if there's been a, a mass shooting in the States, for example, if there's been an earthquake or you know, some tragic event like those that we've followed in Iran, like those that we've seen in Ukraine, that's when the news cycle sort of jumps up again. Um, so in some ways, perhaps it's a little bit reassuring that Iran hasn't been so... Uh, such a focal point in the news. But uh, on the other hand, as you said, this patronage element, which may in some ways be swaying the the political um, powers in, in, in Iran, um, if that patronage were to sort of not necessarily lose the, the momentum, but if it doesn't have that popular support, um, then it may weaken. And that's also a fear, isn't it? Exactly, because I... I've been talking to people and they're saying, oh, I don't even know how, how much of an impact they can have these patronages um, on the people. And I keep telling them, and I really want to underline that, that that's not the right idea. That's not the right way to think about it because really 
we have to think of the regime in Iran as being really easily put under pressure, I think, internationally. We, I, I don't think we should underestimate them, being like, oh, these are so, these are so powerful um, forces that they are, we cannot do anything against them, it doesn't work, and this is just, these are just letters that we're sending there. But really, I, I think we have seen that in these last few, I think it has been two weeks since the beginning of these patronages being connected, um, that the the regime has noticed that and that they have sort of um, taken a step back in, in their in their way of approaching the executions in Iran. Sweden, Austria, Germany are the three countries where I know that there, there's a huge number of um, patronages right now. And I'm hoping it's going to just grow and become more because really anytime someone doubts that that has any impact on Iran, I really want to tell them that, no, don't worry. These are, it's really important, not just the pressure that we put on Iran and the regime there, but the pressure we put on our politicians here too, to be aware of what is happening there and to really act. And I think that's, that's why it's, these patronages are good because they work in both ways. Keep calling your politicians, keep sending them emails and letters and they will feel pressure. I think it has, especially here in Germany, the politicians here have understood it to a, to a large degree that these patronages are really not just symbolic and they need to happen. So I'm I'm really more optimistic than maybe some other people when it comes to that. Mm. And clearly here today, you're not a representative of, of Amnesty in Germany. So you're talking in your personal capacity. Um, but I'm also aware because of some of the other people I work with at uh, with Amnesty that there is quite um, a very strong connection that Amnesty in Germany has with uh, human rights issues in Iran. Um, and actually, it, you know, Amnesty in Germany is considered to be an extremely reliable source, both of information, um, but at the same time, um, as having some kind of influence with regards to either the the, the rollout of news um, or perhaps the, the communication or the two-way communication sort of politically between people, normal people like us or me, um, and the political uh, forces in Germany or perhaps even lower-level politicians in Iran. Um, how is that developing at the moment? And are you involved in that process too? So uh, definitely, Amnesty Germany especially um, has always had a strong focus when it comes to um, bringing attention to issues connecting to connected to Iran, and I can see that this year too there has been there have been some um, I don't know how to say that in English. The um, they were meeting in front of the Bundestag and it was like, like demonstrations. You mean like that kind of thing? Yeah, demonstrations, but in the form of more um, standing there and giving speeches. In German, it's Solidaritätsbekundung. Okay. Like show, showing a sign of solidarity standing there. Um, Germany, uh, Embassy Germany has done that. And now for the last Friday, this Friday and next Friday, they'll be meeting in front of the Iranian embassy in Seelendorf. And that'll be a um, vigil. Uh, they will be holding vigils for the people that have been killed and executed in Iran. So not just online, online activism when it comes to Iran, but also trying to really um, mobilize people inside of Germany to act. I mean, we have the petitions that everyone can sign, not just to the executions, but any kind of imprisonment and has been for for as long as we can think of. I think here um, Iran has always been a strong, strong um, focus of Amnesty Germany's activism. I think also because it, it works both ways, because we see a lot of also interest in the population here in Germany um, uh, with with issues that are um, that we can see in Iran. So it works both. We see that people are 
um, really active and they want to show solidarity to Iranian people. And on the other side, Amnesty Germany, maybe also for reasons of we have, I have a few Iranian colleagues too. And then we have that inside, inside information, that inside knowledge. Um, I mean, that was also um, a thing I was really happy about a few weeks ago. Two of my colleagues from the um, social media team, Clara and Annalisa, we um, translated chants together, Iranian chants from the streets, and posted that for people to have as a resource to use um, to go to protests. So I, I do see some on, on many levels, um, like a mobilization when it comes to Iran. Mm. But there's also a fascination, unless I'm mistaken, from as Iranians themselves of also Germany, as in um, they see Germany as uh, like a quite an interesting country, sort of perhaps culturally, politically also to visit economically. Obviously, Germany is a very powerful country, too. And has you know, has Iran and or have Iran and Germany sort of always benefited from some um, sort of mutual trade you know, e economic agreements as well? So there is quite a relationship, isn't there, between the two countries? anyway yeah definitely it has been for a very long time i think we, if we think back to the last century economic trades uh, was definitely a huge a huge um, relationship um, factor between the two countries i think if you think uh, speak to people who are older than maybe 70 and um, in germany they even tell you like oh yeah i used to like travel to iran and spend like my summer there or something so that was the kind of relationship between both countries and after the revolution, obviously, also with the with Germany's connection to the United States and other countries, it has dampened um, somehow. Um, but I think Sweden, Germany and the United States, the, the diaspora, the Iran diaspora that is there has just always been huge. And um, I mean, to a degree, I think Germany is the milder version of the active diaspora, maybe because it's just the nature that we are. I, I know many Iranians here in Germany who are slow slowly and mildly active in the community and not that open as i can see in los angeles for example just because of you know the word tehran jealous too there's so many iranians and they're so active in the community um, oh yeah but uh, germany and iran definitely um the the communities here has always been strong because always uh, because of the movement in iran to when they were emigrating choosing the countries sweden and germany were both countries that had open embassies. Um, so there was a huge number of Iranians that could come here. And I think Germany has always had a good reputation uh, for Iranians to see as the country where things work effectively and efficiently and uh, <laughs> economy uh, works, the economy mm -hmm. works and you will find a job there. And, you know, everything is not maybe that as chaotic, chaotic as it can be in like a big city like Tehran and, and Iran is maybe that those are the ideas um, that you have some calm here and in your everyday life in comparison to to Iran. not even in a negative sense i mean that's everyone can choose but yeah i think that's how the relationship between those countries came together yeah and i mean and also from my sort of my wife's side i can say that I mean, she's been to iran a number of times because she used to work on a project which was uh, connected with um managing the zion derud which is uh, this very important river um, in Iran, which uh, provides obviously water to a huge number of communities in the surrounding area. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, there were, well, there's overuse, um, in some cases, pollution and so on. So the German uh, ministry invested in trying to create a system in cooperation with the Iranian government to try to find uh, a form of a system which would mediate, as it were, 
the the impact of uh, industrialization on the Zion de Rud. And so, you know, that relationship had continued all the way up, I think, until Corona um, and even during in, in some cases. So, yeah, definitely the, there is a close relationship between the two two countries. And, you know, hopefully there can be some benefit to, to come from that um yeah thereafter it's interesting though isn't it because as you say perhaps in the states people are a bit more uh, emotional a bit more um uh, vociferous you know they the sort of shout a bit louder than people do in perhaps uh, europe but maybe that's also an american cultural thing uh, and not just the iranian diaspora there if you know what i mean yeah, it definitely that is a factor of how um, the relationship between the people in, inside the country and the, the immigrants that come there, how much you feel that you're free um, to express your cultural identity. And there might be, I mean, due to Germany's um, also now rising right wing populism and anything else, it might just be a, a culture difference in that, too. Um, but also, I think I when I was reading upon the history of immigration from Iran to other countries, the story of uh, immigration to the United States, I think it started maybe even earlier than to European countries here. So that has also been a big factor, I think, in differences between the types of immigrants. More than 40 years, even before the revolution, um, the Iranians that moved to the United States, they will be wealthier, maybe um, had a different status. And they had just maybe also when they came there, they felt just more easily accepted because Iran also had a different reputation during that time in the United States. And with Germany, it's just, I, I always see it as a, a soft, a soft type of integration. Sometimes it's also assimilation. You are not that open with your Iranian identity in some cases here. Um, I mean, not everyone uh, here in the diaspora is like that, but I think that's the, that's a huge difference too. The word assimilation, I, I wouldn't connect it to the Iranian diaspora in the United States. Mm. I would see it more here in Germany. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, we have uh, some similarities culturally, uh, you and I. So I, I sort of represent the, as it were, the Armenian diaspora in some cases. And I have lots and lots of friends of mine in London, or at least I had friends who I grew up with, and they were Armenian, but Iranian Armenians. Um, and so therefore, we, we always used to sort of joke around because Iranian Armenians speak Armenian with a very strong Iranian accent. Um, and my Armenian background is, you know, other parts of the Middle East, so Lebanon and Iraq, where there is a slightly, I would say, softer accent. Um, but there's also a dialect issue. So I'm Western Armenian dialect and the Iranian Armenians who have had a community for over 400 years um, in Iran um, have a, the Eastern dialect. So, again, there were slight differences there. But the point is that for me, Iran was never a strange country. Do you know what I mean? I kind of grew up knowing people from that place, and they always spoke warmly of Iran. Um, they were affectionate with regards to how they felt about the country. And whenever there was a football, I remember there was a football match between Iran and the United States in, in a World Cup. And I've never seen so many Armenians watch a football match as that particular game. So even the people who hated football, you know, they were there. There was like, I don't know, about 150 people watching Iran um, play this football match against the USA. And it was just a great atmosphere to, you know, to see. Um, so, yeah, this is why for me, Iran is of a particular interest as well as the Middle East in general, because I'm kind of familiar with how, um, 
how people from Iran affectionately feel towards the country because they know how how different it is to the Western reputation that it has. So in the West, Iran does have this reputation of being a very, very restrictive country. Um, there are zero freedoms and so on. Um, but it's not always like that. And it's not like that under every circumstance. Um, and this is also one of the reasons why it's so extremely unfortunate um, or horrific that these events have even taken place because there was no need for them to have taken place in the way that they have. Um, but I mean, you know better than than I do. I mean, generally speaking, when you've been to Iran, um, have you, okay, you have to obviously follow the customs and the norms, but would you say that you felt unequal, generally speaking, in Iran or in Iranian society or when speaking with friends? I mean, how did you feel about, you know, your position or your place as a woman in Iran? Um, I mean, um, I have, I have to say I've been in Iran ever since I was a little child. So most summers we spend our time there um, with our family. And so Iran for me is um, my second home. Like Berlin is my first home in Iran and Tehran, especially my second home. And I have to say, um, me personally, I haven't been that um, involved or that exposed to the rest of the Iranian society um, that I, that I know about from online activists and everything. So I can only speak of my family and I, I'm lucky. Uh, everyone in my family is very liberal, liberally minded. And there's no, there's not really the, you know, the, the idea that in Iran women are good. It, it is that, like that in the outside, like everyday life and you have to go in, in your workplace and everywhere else. But the people themselves, uh, it's like a veil that you can take off and you see, oh no, you know, the people themselves, they don't even, consider um, the different kinds of restrictions towards women's rights and everything as, as being like the important, the important element of everyday life. So I've, my, I've personally only ever felt um, restricted because of wearing, having to wear the hijab in the street. And it's not about the hijab itself. It's just the fact that I cannot choose um, to wear it in mean, 40 degrees in summer to go on the street and have to be covered um, arms and legs and everything that Personally, I would not choose to that put that much clothes on. Um, but that those are the things. So it's the state. It, it has never been any male um, person in my family or anyone on the street that I've have encountered that um, was trying to tell me or put me in place and say, you're a woman in society, you have to act differently. It has always been the state and the laws that are there. Um, and I also wanted to um, speak about the fact that you were saying that for you, Iran is not a strange country and, you know, the... Um, the perception that there were some Western countries have on Iran. Um, and I always feel like as a Iranian German person, um, it's always like a, a job of an ambassador to show, to change the narrative and to show that Iran um, and the Iranian society, it is not the way we always hear about the negative news that we have on the news. And I think that's for me um, personally, always been my, my, my job to be like, yeah, yeah, I, I know you know about these um, these horrific things that are happening in Iran. Um, but, you know, it's the people didn't wish for that, that people don't want that. And the people there, they're really not that different. I mean, it goes, uh, personally, I think it goes for every country on earth. The idea to see any country as strange is um, is something that I wish we would work on, work on and, you know, don't feel that um, distance from other cultures and other people. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my, my you know, my my personal mission to show people that, 
um, Iranians and people there are not that different from any other um, people on earth. And we can just imagine, you know, the young people in Iran have the same wishes and the same hopes and desires for their life um, that, you know, any German person would have or any American person would have. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe people have heard it many times already, but it's important to remember that you know, Iran or Persia has a huge history. You know, we're not talking about a country which was brought into life after the end of the Second World War because the British decided, yeah, OK, let's draw some borders and call it Iran. Um, it's a place with a huge culture. I think Tehran itself has a history of, what, 3000 years. Um, there is a vast culture behind this country, which um, a lot of people underestimate. Um, and also, if we want to talk about how socially and politically Iran has changed since the times of the Shah um, or since the Second World War, we also have to look at the interventions that other countries have um, you know, have actually introduced themselves and undertaken. And it's not an element of um, being uh, or trying to find a, a way to justify what's happening in Iran, because I, I, I think that what's happened recently is a horror um but i can't judge the culture um the, the, here we are talking about some very misguided powerful men um who have introduced rules uh, which are wholly unjustified um and i i cannot support it um in any way and I, obviously most people can't either and that's why there's so much by way of uh, movement and support for the movement within iran um but this should not be an opportunity for people to criticize Iranian or Persian culture. Um, but this should be an opportunity in some ways um, for debate dialogue uh, to sort of take place between countries uh, to try to find a solution. And, you know, as you said, this political patronage is a system for achieving that. Exactly. It's, it's not just a culture that we should not see as, um, you know, open to criticism right now uh, in regards to the revolution, but also the religion too. And that's why I always want to differentiate when I um, talk to people and see their support. Um, I don't want to see Islamophobic support um, towards the movement right now in Iran. It really is not about um, being like, oh, it's the, the hijab, you know, it should be gone. I've heard some people say that uh, women in other countries should take off their veil and their hijab in solidarity with the Iranian women. And even though, I mean, might for some people sound like a nice show of solidarity, but that's not what this is, the movement right now is about in the revolution to just take the, you know, the people there and be like, oh, yeah, but, you know, they're fighting against Islam or they're fighting against, um, you know, their their Middle Eastern culture that they have. It really is uh, is not. And we can see it also from the points of human rights that you know human rights are universal and they should be universal and um which is why I, right now when people are saying like oh you um you know be careful of not imposing any kind of western or european um ideas on iran and that's definitely what should not happen but at the same time what the people are fighting there is not to become western or european they are just fighting for human rights to not be killed just because they're going to the streets to not be killed because they're choosing not to wear um a hijab or to not be killed because they don't want to, you know, they want to have um, friends from the other gender or anything, any kind of restriction like that. Those are just basic human rights and needs. And it's not, you cannot just trace them back to culture and then try to justify and be like, okay, you know, um, 
Iranians were supposed to be, you know, supposed to live like that and to be like that. So it's really important to differentiate the different levels um, and make sure that it's it's not about imposing any kind of Western or European ideas on Iran. It's just about human rights that are universal, and that should that should be the focus of any kind of um, debate that we have. That it's not, um, as you say, it's important not to take that as a starting point to criticize the the culture in any negative way or to criticize the religion, um, but definitely to always go back and say like, no, look at what the people are demanding on the streets. They're not saying, they're not saying, um, we want European rights. They're saying we want freedom. And I think that's these chants that are so universal and, you know, uh, women, life, freedom, Zanzendigazari is something that has echoed so much around the world because of its universal nature and not because it's bound culturally to the West or the, the European countries. Yeah, and it's very important to uh, to remember these points. Um, as you said, some people will sort of use this as an opportunity to jump jump on the uh, Islamophobic bandwagon, um, and uh, we have to be very cautious of this. You know, if we claim to really value a democracy and freedom of speech, um, then we also have to obviously value the people's right to um, have whichever religion um, that they believe in and to respect those rights uh, and to support them. A point of interest thereafter, because as we said, you know, we're both sort of uh, diasporans in, in many ways. Um, I was active in London in the Armenian community. I no longer am. Um, but, you know, you, I suppose, um, I don't know, are you active in the Iranian community in London, in, sorry, in, London, in Berlin? um i don't know if i would say active i mean i used to go to iranian school um when i uh, when i was very young to learn how to speak uh, how to write and read farsi um so there i had iranian friends and i met you know other iranian people and we also celebrated new year's together um in march but um after that after you know the end of my uh, persian school um i really didn't have that many it was not that i was actively trying not to be part of the community but it just happened that I didn't meet that many Iranian people in Iran and my parents are also very um really relaxed people so we have <laughs> we don't have they're not um you know going out every day and looking for the Iranian community in Berlin so maybe that's the reason I haven't been that involved but this year with the start of the revolution um and the protests here in Iran I have I've become involved again and active again I'm meeting many many new people and people that have just moved to Iran maybe like two years ago um, and have totally different kind of, um, you know, perception of the Iranian diaspora than I have because I was born here. Um, and also sending each other the next protest that we have in Berlin and meeting there, um, you know, that I have seen that um, the solidarity in, especially in online uh, activism to sharing the art of Iranian diaspora and everything. So I've seen that. I've only had that now with the with the protests that I've seen and felt part of the community. I mean, you you are with a very big protest that we had in October with almost 100,000 people in Iran, but those were Iranians that came from everywhere else too. Because I was surprised to find out that there are only, I think about 10,000 Iranians in Berlin, according to official statistics. Um, so I think the perception, I was like, oh, maybe there are just many Iranians that are assimilated in Berlin, but maybe there are just not that many Iranians here. So maybe that's also why the the, the community and the diaspora here is um, mildly active online and maybe not that present in everyday life. That Maybe the Turkish um, community, for example, is here in Berlin.
Mm. Yeah, but I mean, there's uh, what, a million and a half, uh, maybe even more tax in, in Germany in general. I don't know what the statistic is for Berlin, but um, it's, it, clearly it's a much larger community than the, the Iranian community. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and how, because when I was involved in the Armenian community, I have to say, I mean, we, we, we had this kind of saying, um, really, I have a feeling that the Iranian communities are quite similar but please educate me on this so if you kind of put two armenians together they'd form three political parties um how is that with uh with <laughs> with the iranians i mean are they similar are they as argumentative as armenians are um no i think so i think so I've, um, it depends on the age i think if you find um for example the same same age group uh, of Iranian diaspora, there will be to a large degree the same political ideology um, or the same political views. Um, but when you start, for example, a 20 year old Iranian um, diaspora person and then one who's maybe 50, you will you will not see that eye to eye in many cases. Um, <laughs> which is unfortunate, um, I have to say, for the protests in, in Berlin, because sometimes you have the, you know, uh, the same day and then you have a protest one part in Berlin and another one somewhere else. And they're like, the one group is more leftist leaning. They have the Kurdish flag, especially because they're trying to show us international solidarity for the large ethnic group in Iran that has um, been very much affected by um, by the killings. And then you have another group of people, the age of my parents, um, who know Iran before the revolution too, and who don't have the I think a more romantic who do have a romanticized view of the monarchy uh, in Iran, and then you see the flags too with the lion and the and the sun behind it, um, and um and a sword, and that those are the differences. And then you speak with them, and you're like, we're not at the point right now to discuss political ideology in Iran. We all have the same goal right now, which is to fight for the freedom of the Iranians there, and not to see anyone killed anymore or in- imprisoned. So if you're leftist or if you're monarchist, we can <laughs> we can have that later. But I have seen many people who are like, I'm not going to that protest because they're having these flags um, and the other one they have there. And they have different chants too. the leftist protests that I've been to. Um, they play different songs um, from the time to leftist movements. Um, and then you go to the other group and they're older and they have, for example, the national anthem um, that used to be the national anthem before the revolution in Iran. And they play those and play other songs and have different chants. Um, so I think, um, yeah, in that regard, <laughs> the Armenian and Iranian diaspora is very similar. <laughs> mm, yeah, I had a feeling. I mean, there is some, you know, people always say that oh, you don't talk politics and so on. And, you know, the thing is, though, if you ever meet somebody from the Middle East, I think one of the most interesting things to talk about with a Middle Eastern person is politics. Um, and because everybody has an opinion even if they don't always voice it. Um, and it's a great it's a great icebreaker, to be honest. Um, but you've got to be willing to <laughs> listen to opinions which will perhaps, you know, emotionally different to your own, and then and then you're okay. But if you're somebody who can't accept listening to other people's opinions, then don't talk politics at all, I think. But uh, yeah. And how is the unity generally then in Berlin with regards to these protests? So you said, OK, this this issue with regards to uh, monarchists and just as a byline, though, if you remember when we did the um, uh, the workshop about the Iran Contra affair, um, you know, after this uh, horrible uh, murder of Masa Amini um, with the, the by the morality police, one of the things that I remembered was 
the savak under the times of the Shah, you know, which is which the Shah was, you know, he was aided in creating the savak by the CIA, um, and the savak and this morality police. The difference between the two is not so great. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure the savak also killed, tortured, um, imprisoned, you know, yeah. as many people unjustifiably, and in fact created the possibility for the the revolution to take place because of the inhumane treatment of innocent people um and so you know there is this unfortunate element within iranian society that a government that comes in feels the need to have this kind of organization there um to to basically take care of the people the dissenters um, essentially mm -hmm. it's you know it's horrible isn't it having this I, I don't see why it has to be the case yeah, I mean, we will offend some uh, Iranian monarchists with, <laughs> with this question. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, if you say the word Savak, uh, savak uh, and, and conversations with monarchists, um, it will not, you will not be, <laughs> you will not be having a nice conversation after that, I fear. Uh, <laughs> sorry, monarchists. But um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but uh, um, I mean, I have to say myself, I've I've tried to have these conversations um, because in my family, it's not like I'm the only leftist that I know of in my family. So um, it, I have had these conversations where I'm trying to be, hey, let's not glorify and romanticize the monarchy before. Obviously, I, I really cannot argue against it. Obviously, the last 40 plus years in Iran are not comparable to, to the decades of monarchy that we had in Iran with regards to just the inhuman acts that we're seeing and the just the restrictions in everyday life, the psychological torture too, and everything that is going on. So I think that's also a reason why arguments with monarchists are, you know, it ends at this point. They're like, but, you know, people were not, um, people under the age of 18 might have not been that, um, might have not been killed or tortured or raped in the, um, in the jails as they might have been now in the last 40 years. And that's why I think it's really easy for monarchists to point a finger and say, look, at least it wasn't like it is right now, at least to the extent, um, you know, he, yes, there were, have, there were political descent, uh, political people who were imprisoned for their opinion. Some of them, or maybe a large number of them were um, mullahs and ahuns and people who, you know, were religious and um, at the end could show their martyrdom when the revolution came to be like, oh, look what the Shah did to us. Uh, this should not happen again dissent is um is important for uh, a democracy so um yeah i think that's um that's why arguments are hard uh, in that degree if you have them with monarchists um, and you try to use words as savak and try to show that there is also another option and there should be another option for the people in iran to choose and not to go back to the monarchy um and i mean i don't know if you followed that but the the son of the former shah in iran um is very active and uh, and speaking out. He's interviewed many times. Um, I think his his mother too. She lives in France. There are still people who um, have a large audience uh, in the Iranian diaspora, especially. Um, and we also have some um, satellite TV, like Manotou, for example, who have monar. They um, I don't want to say that they romanticize the monarchy, but they do have uh, the tendency to look upon um, the monarchy in a more positive light. 
um, just because it is there is such a big contrast. I mean, when you everyone shows these pictures of women in Iran before the revolution wearing short skirts and not wearing the hijab, going out or wearing the hijab and someone else next to a person is not wearing the hijab. So having that those social freedoms um, outwardly. So I think that's why it's very um, yeah. Well, it's, it's at least um, for me as a, a leftist person to show that you know it's it's important to know and not to um, say that the monarchy in Iran and the regime right now were the same evil. I think that's um, we cannot argue like that. But to say that we we can expect more, and the Iranian people, I think, um, I mean, we will let them decide in the end, and they have the hand, and they will choose their future. Um, but I think they also are aware of other options that we can have in Iran. Mm. It, it doesn't have to be either monarchy or the regime that we have right, right now. Um, but I think that's that's very obvious to many people. But still, it's always good to always good to underline these things. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, because of what's happened in the past, this is also why the uh, the religious leaders in Iran can turn around and say, "Look, these protests are being influenced by foreign powers," because you know. It is a fact that in in 1953, that's exactly what happened when they brought down Mossadegh. It's also, you know, very much the case that in in the 70s they were also involved, in, you know, in these protests too. Um, and so, therefore, even if there is no proof that I have seen, at least, and I, I'm not exactly privy to any particular information, but there's no proof that I have seen openly that any uh, external forces have done anything more in the last few months than they had done previously, it's very easy for the powers to say, this is the Americans, for example. Um, and that's unfortunate. That is very unfortunate, especially because um, I have seen the media coverage and, and for example, here in Germany or in the United States, being so, um, they're so um, easily manipulated from the Iranian regime too when it comes to giving out information that might give you hope. For example, a few weeks ago when they were um, spreading the news that the morality police at the Gashtarshad has been abolished in Iran. And that was just propaganda by the regime and the um, diaspora and the activists online. They were very quick to point out and be like, no, 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 don't take anything that sounds hopeful right now and positive um, from the government um, it's just they're just trying to appease the international um, community and sh try to show them yeah yeah we've seen people protesting on the streets so now we're acting and we're abolishing the morality police but then um, not being aware and not being aware of the structures that are in Iran I've seen a vice documentary um, a few days ago where they were showing the really intricate structure that Iran, the Iranian regime has with regards to military, the Basij, the Sipa and everything. They have built so many independent structures of um, forces that it's so, so complicated to try to even abolish one of them and try to say that, oh, yeah, we've undermined them now and they don't have that much power anymore. It is exactly for those for those reasons that so many independent forces were established in Iran. In, in the Basij and the Sipa and um, the Quds and everything, um, just for them to not be fallible to any kind of um, decisions or any kind of outside pressure that there might be. So that's why they could say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've abolished the morality police. But in the end, everyone on the street in Iran um, that is part of the, you know, the regime can become morality police either way. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very easy um, for the regime in Iran to 
point fingers and be like, oh, look, look, these people are just trying to tell you that you need to live a different life and you're looking for these things. Um, and, you know, for example, we have um, Masi Alinejad, um, an activist who lives in the United States, a very loud voice, has a lot, reaches a large audience. And she is also, the regime frames her as a spy. And she's trying to just, you know, manipulate the Iranian people from the outside. And they're always quick to say she doesn't even live in Iran. Um, you know, who's she to be speaking about your life here right now? Um, but that's, that has always been the tactic of the Iranian regime. Everything, every kind of movement inside Iran, no matter the nature, um, it has always been, yeah, yeah, this, these are just forces by the, these are just outside forces just trying to lead you away from uh, a good and moral life. But then, I mean, we have not just um, political protests, but we always have protests, for example, where you were mentioning the Zoyanda route um, a, a few minutes ago, when the people were just going there and being like, we need the government to step in. We have a shortage of water in Iran. We are facing the climate crisis here. And this is, uh, we cannot continue live in a, in a you know, livable way. Even those people that were protesting, not even, you know, not even saying anything against the regime, like people are saying right now in the revolution, even they were imprisoned or shot at and they were silenced too. So that's, um, you know, the nature of the Iranian regime, the restrictions that they're imposing on the whole country. It goes into any kind of facet and into any kind of issue that we're seeing. Yeah, and there is significant unrest uh, in many parts of Iran for different reasons. So it's it's uh, it's not just uh, this one. And as you say, um, the you know, climate and environmental effects of industrialization in various areas, overuse, um, yeah, is creating huge problems. So you know, the government's going to have to sort itself out. Um, but yeah, you mentioned um, sort of international individuals. I, I've also got a small list of um, other. Mm -hmm. Um, so some people in Iran who have been arrested. So, okay, we know about Ali Dai, um, is a famous uh, former footballer. His wife and daughter were prevented from leaving Iran. Their, their jumbo jet was uh, redirected and they were asked politely to leave. Um, Ali Dai has spoken out recently against the, um, you know, the regime. Tarane Ali Dusti, please correct my uh, pronunciations, was arrested for her stance. Um, three other people, Hengame Gaziani, Katayun Riahi, Voria Gafuri, arrested and released. Um, but then also a more person who I'm more familiar with, Shore Akhtashlu, who's a very famous sort of Hollywood actress as well, has uh, taken part in demonstrations um, you know, in support of the, the movement. Do you think that these famous Iranians have a positive influence on the protests? Do you think that their participation will um, yeah, help your average everyday person of Tehran to, to keep going, keep pushing, keep demanding? Definitely. Uh, it has, right now we can see that not just with the people that you've mentioned, but um, for example, musicians like Gugush, other very famous people, famous just because they reach such a large audience, Iranian diaspora and the Iranian people themselves, they look at them and they look also for so, um, yeah, definitely the Iranian um, diaspora looks at them and also criticizes them a lot if they don't see any kind of action, if they don't see them voicing uh, voicing their support for the revolution right now. I've seen that, for example, in in, in LA, I think there was a concert by Gugush and protesters, uh, Iranian protesters were in front of the concert and were like, how can you, you know, give a concert right now and not, you know, um, we're in mourning, we're a nation in mourning right now and 
um, really trying to hold them accountable to any kind of, um, you know, silence that they might be showing towards because they're afraid. And anytime someone does speak out, they are very supportive and they're very happy about it because then they're like, oh, this person who has, you know, who's seen and admired by many people um, is speaking out in support and that will just change a lot. And for example, in Taruna Ali Dusti, it was such huge news too for her to take off the hijab, post pictures of that, and then to be imprisoned. We've seen other um, actresses and actors in Iran show the support also go in front of the jail that she's in right now. Um, so people have, in Iran, they always look up to um, big voices, to any kind of famous person that um, you know can then also amass people. Ebi, for example, any kind of other person, when they say like, okay, here's the protest in LA and, and let's meet there and they go, they will amass some more people and some, you know, they can mobilize with their voices. So any um, anytime that happens, Iranian people are um, you know very happy about it. And and you know the other side of the coin is that if there are Iranian you know Iranian famous Iranian people, and they don't say anything and they keep quiet, then they will be judged very harshly by many people. And they are, the disappointment is very big when you see. I mean that you saw that with the World Cup too, with the national team when they were um, you know. I mean, obviously, their families had been threatened um, and we don't know how much pressure had been put on them. A few days before the World Cup, you know, meeting with um, Iranian officials and posting pictures uh, of them, you know, not being sad, but smiling, even though um, such horrible things are happening in Iran. And then everyone was very, very disappointed. And like, you know, especially Iran as a nation of football lovers to be that um, hugely disappointed by the team. Um, And then everyone posts about them. I mean, you probably are aware the Iranian people are so, so socially active online too. And, you know, posting messages, it it spreads around like wildfire online when the news comes out. Also, sometimes um, in a negative way, because fake news are spread very easily that way too. Um, But yeah, definitely um, Iranians really look up to people that have a large audience and try to also show their, um, you know, assess how much they can admire them um, if they don't show their support for the people and what they're fighting for in Iran. Yeah, it is it is in many ways a poison chalice, isn't it? So you're kind of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, and uh, yeah, this is the, yeah, the very thin line that uh, people have to walk, unfortunately. Um, all right, I'll, I'll ask you one final question, if I may. Um, and yeah, I know you're not a, a fortune teller, a clairvoyant. You can't tell the future, and I don't want to put you on the line or any or, you know, under any pressure. Um, but do you think that we're going to get? Uh, and I say we, and by this, I'm suggesting the people in, in Iran um, who are protesting for their rights for, for equality, to an extent at least. Um, do you think we're going to see a kind of positive resolution? to this do you think that the government are going to take a step back and say okay we we overstepped we are sorry or do you think to achieve what they want to achieve they would probably need to have a new system of government as in how do you see it you know moving forward from here um i would definitely um you know agree with the latter because i think at this point um there is no there's zero chance of talks with the Iranian regime. There's zero chance of, you know, the Iranian regime stepping towards the protesters and being like, hey, we've done some bad things. Um, let's talk about it. I, I'm very sure that is actually something that I can say with certainty. Um, that that regime will not back down. 
And anyway, I, I don't think we can expect them to show any kind of mercy or any kind of willingness for compromise, which is why um, any kind of international politician trying to negotiate or trying to look for you know negotiations with the regime, I don't think that will lead to anywhere um, because the regime really there are they want the they want their power, they want their money, um, and they're not going to give up until they have all that. And, you know, I cannot fathom them just letting everyone else, um, you know, take away their power um, in Iran. So I think what we do need for the future of Iran is international support. Um, we do need pressure on the regime. There's, um, I think, really any kind of Whenever I see articles that are thinking of reform in Iran um, or any kind of a way like that, that's not what the people in Iran are demanding. They are demanding regime change. They are demanding the fall of the regime. And you can hear that in, in their chants and you can hear it also on anywhere else. They're, these people are, we're not going to continue to um, accept their existence as um, any kind of force or power in Iran. And there are some um, regime people who even execute their own children if they're not in line with what they're saying it has happened in the last um, decades so i really think we need to think of them not in a way of people that can be persuaded to do the right thing but people that need to be pressured to step back to step away um and to not continue having any kind of force anymore because if they were if there were politicians and if that was a government that you could speak to you could talk to um we wouldn't see you know, these executions. We wouldn't see people, even children. I mean, so far, I think Amnesty has um, documented more than 60 children um, that have been killed this year alone. Um, you wouldn't see all all these horrific things that are happening there. The government would, uh, the regime would, um, you know, maybe hold back and not use arms, armed forces in the streets um, to try to kill and, and you know, violate people. Um, so that's why I'm I'm very certain that there's no there's no future that includes negotiations with the Iranian regime. Uh, I think that's not we cannot I cannot see that for the Iranian regime. And I think the people in Iran also don't um, they would not be happy if, um, you know, we would continue being like, OK, let's let's try to find a peace solution with the regime. Um, that's really not what is being demanded right now. And also the other way around. And um, just to make the last point. The regime knows that once they um, would, you know, start compromising with the people, maybe taking off um, restrictive laws, for example, the compulsory hijab, they would know that that's also the end of their their um, regime. And because then their people will be like, okay, this is this is the first step towards our freedom, but we are demanding other things too. We're not just demanding people to um, take off their hijab. A an Iranian woman in front of court um, is only. Uh, her value is only half of that of a man. So you need two Iranian women um, to speak out. And but it's enough if you have one man. And there are so many other laws like that that just, you know, with regards to women's rights, they need to be abolished. They need to, be, um, you know, they're not in accordance with human rights. So that's why the whole the whole system that has been established in the last 43 years has to be dismantled. And I think if I'm saying that, I think that's also what the Iranian people are are really demanding right now and fighting for in the streets. Yeah, and um, and and well said. Um, because earlier when I uh, mentioned that in Iran things are not quite the way it seems, I obviously I wasn't referring to the government level. I was referring to at the level of individual people and how they interact within their groups. Um, but you're absolutely 
correct to you know to point out the law is very much against women um legally speaking women are you know living very difficult unequal lives uh, and that has to fundamentally change one way or another um but also, what can i say it's we've always enjoyed uh, our conversations and our debates um this again has been fascinating speaking with you i'm very very grateful that you join me especially during this period of rest and relaxation um i'm hopeful that in 2023 we can talk again about iran in a more positive light um or about any other topic indeed um so thank you thank you very much for you know for coming and joining me today no thank you very much for inviting me and also for giving the platform to to iran right now it's um you know i'm very grateful that you're you're also seeing the importance of you know speaking about Iran right now and especially where you're saying the relaxation period that we're in it's still important that we um you know don't step back and say okay we're not seeing any executions so maybe we're seeing something positive so thank you very much um it was really a pleasure and um yeah always our Iranian Armenian culture debates <laughs> <laughs> too I really enjoy them good good uh, I look forward to uh, to the next one Take care. Take care. Bye. Two and a mic.